Welcome to the Splinters Podcast from the team on the bench. Community Radio's leading no-holds-barred Friday night sports show. Available online and replayed on Triple H 100.1 FM. Now, here's your host, the Italian stallion, Dom Rizzuto. Good evening, ladies and gents, and welcome to Splinters our sporting podcast on a Tuesday evening on Triple H 100.1 FM. Streaming live on the web at www.triplehfm.com.au and available for download at podcast.com, Apple Store, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify and all good podcast sites. And we do it all, of course, for Magbuyers Waitara, the action attraction of the North Shore. My name is Dom Rizzuto and it's a pleasure to be here with you talking sport once again during the week. And, well... When I say talking sport, talking sport that's gone past, politics, sport that isn't happening, because, of course, it has effectively been halted due to the coronavirus that has plagued the lands over the course of the last six months. Uh, Obviously, we've got no sport in view, so we've reached a point of time where we've left to just come up with analysis shows and stuff that you might actually want to talk about that have gone past once upon a time. Today, we've got a big, big edition of splinters we're going real down and dirty and we know that all of us here love controversy when it comes to sport and today folks we are going through the top 10 australian sporting scandals of all time of course i can't do it all by myself i'm joined by the king of controversy the uh the self-proclaimed godfather of the bench we do know him more affectionately though as the bull, Anthony Caruso. How are you, sir? Tom, it's been a while since we've done a podcast together. I know. It's been, it has been. And, and you know what? It's it's good to be back. What can I say? Absolutely. The, the old firm back together, of course. The good evening, firm. everyone. Good evening, everyone. And thank you for joining us once again. I, I love a good piece of, as, uh, as, uh, our, you know, as one of our idols, the, uh, the voice of rugby league, Ray Warren, would say controversy. Controversy. Uh, so, and I'm really looking forward to this. We have pulled out top our top ten, but we've got to put some rules down, don't we? We do. We have put some rules down as well. So we've got ten of you tonight for you tonight, ladies and gents. We'll go through first five, uh, and of course they are ranked. So uh, stay tuned for the whole hour because we'll have number one at the top of the show. So stay tuned, as I mentioned. These are moments that have happened purely in Australia, so we're not going out into the wide world this time around. We're we're staying in the Australian sporting sphere, and we've been we've been quite meticulous in the rules that we've set out, Caruso. Yeah, absolutely. The first one we've got is we've put a limit of two entries per sport, and yeah, very easy why, very easy reason why. We'd be here all day talking about rugby league AFL. Yes, of course. Because right. let's face it, those two sports are, I think some would say, kept alive by the scandals that happened uh, during uh, the season. The next one is an interesting one, Dom. What is it? Well, we're bending rules slightly and we're getting a little bit of, you know, exploiting loopholes and over-the-top conduct are out. But uh, outright cheating, manipulation and poor management are in. So... Little hint there for those audience, for those listening in, that we will be going into some, uh, some, some would say some, uh, maybe some 
little bit of titter tatter between uh, between uh, various different parties who might have had some arguments once upon a time and uh, didn't quite uh, go to plan in terms of the negotiations. Yeah. The next one is also going to be juicy as well, but it's important we do this one. So anything that didn't make it past investigation stage or wasn't made public knowledge is out. There is no dabbling in rumours. This is 100% factual. This is obviously to protect everyone that's involved. Uh, it, it can be quite salacious what we're going through here. So we want to make sure whatever we're doing is real. We are not delving in fake news here. No, it's all true here on the bench and we deal with the facts. We don't, uh, we don't, we don't obviously have, we, we have strong opinions, all of us here, but, and we, and I've, I suppose we've all been, a, had our fair share of criticism and we've been uh, wrong plenty of times, but we are wrong at least about the right things, if that makes any sense at all for you. I mean, let, let's crack on, let, let's get right into it. I feel like there should be like a, a, a trumpet sound effect start that we should have going here to, to kick off the top 10, the hooter sound, the boop, boop. Maybe in some post-production, we might get be able to get that to you once you hit this uh, on a later date. Lord Mayor, if you're listening in. Lord Mayor, if you're listening in, uh, as uh, you uh, joked about during the uh, little uh, pre-setup we had before we started this, Caruso, that uh, there's going to generate more debate here than an episode of Married at First Sight. So let's get straight into Splinters right here with number 10. It's a big one. It's recent. It was one that we covered on uh, Triple H Sports a lot over a big, over a good three, four month period. And it was the sacking of then Matilda's coach, Alan Stadich. And we still don't know why. Well, we don't know why. The rumours that we won't go into um, have... um, have, 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 have are just that rumours that no one's actually gone into it, but we can deal with what we do know. Uh, we do know that, for example, while he was hired in 2014, uh, he was then sacked in the lead-up to the 2019 um, FIFA Women's World Cup. What we do know is this. There was a comment on Twitter by FFA board member Heather Reed making cryptic remarks about how people would be shocked if they knew the reasons uh, we know that the certain players came out in exceptionally strong support of Ellen Staggage, and the two most notable ones, indeed, were probably the two best players for Australia at that World Cup, which were uh, Emily Van Egmond and Samantha Kerr. It was so, very interesting, wasn't it? Because it, the the way the FA handled it was so poorly, where they were pretty much caught for outright lying. Because we, we talk about that support of the two of the two top players. But the initial reports that came out were suggesting that players had originally come to the board uh, and come to, to key figures within the FFA saying that uh, they were suffering high levels of stress and they feared about speaking out, out about the current team environment that Stadich had been cultivating if that's the right word to use there so very interesting that we, we we had that one side of the story and then it quickly flipped on its head to become a a, a, a totally different issue altogether came then then it came down to obviously as we pointed out quite a lot during the um period in which it was it was really prominent who and why and what was to blame, what was the reasoning, and 
did it realistically kill the Matildas' chance of taking going all the way at the World Cup in 2019? Well, let's let's deal with the field. The, the we we leave the on-field performance for another day, and I'll say very quickly. I think it distracted them enough that it was certainly the case because their defence was clearly lacking. But the stories that were coming out at the time were. Um, quite varied, but then seemed to centre around accusations, and I do stress accusations, of fat shaming and of a certain grouping of people from within the playing group and within the upper management. Um, there were players' names who were involved in that. I won't delve into them, uh, into who was targeted, apart from saying that one of them did involve a former player for the Sydney FC women's team. But the clincher for this was then what is then what happened later on in 2019. Alan Stagic took the FFA to court over unfair dismissal. And what was incredible was, of course, in May, the case settled out of court. Alan Stagic was paid quite a bit of money, especially bonuses and reputation damage. And the most damning point of the ball was Heather Reid produced a public statement, and I quote, I apologise unreservedly for the damage, distress and hurt that I caused to Alan Stagich as a professional football coach. Say what you will, but that is a damning indictment on the conduct of Heather Reid and other people within the FFA into the whole affair with Alan Stagich. And amazingly enough, Alan Stagich ended up coming out looking like the good guy. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? Because... Um, he, uh, I mean, not only did he come out the good guy, he landed a, jo- a job with the Central Coast Mariners. I mean, I don't know what's worse, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> you know, getting a, getting, uh, getting uh, sacked and, uh, you know, having your uh, your reputation absolutely dismantled uh, unfairly, or getting it back and then having to go work with the Mariners. So, I mean, it's uh, <laughs> take it what you will from his point of view. It was a, a, a controversy that the, the Matildas didn't need. It wrecked their World Cup campaign. It didn't make any sense in the end because arguably you would have thought they would have bought, in a, if it was a, a, a around a team environment, you would have thought they would have bought in a female coach. They didn't. They bought in Ante Milicic, uh, the insistent coach, because they couldn't find anyone because, funnily enough, that's what happens oh, no, when, no, you're no, trying, that was, when you're two months away from a World Cup. No, that I can confirm was David Gallup getting blindsided initially with Alan Stagic and going, you know what, if you're going to blindside me on this, I'm going to blindside you on that. And he personally appointed Ante Milicic as a, a get-back at Heather Reid and a few other people. Mm, well, you know, again, it became a, became a big talking point, a big controversy in Australian sport, a lot of pointing fingers. And, and what we always find with these with our Australian teams, as soon as they start to get on top, Immediately, the the greed starts to and the and the and the I'm not say the, the the limelight starts to feed its way through the team and and the and the and the company, and it just wreaks havoc, and it's so disappointing to see. I think this one was a controversy was more not so much laugh out loud, but just frustrating. Cringy, I would describe. I think cringeworthy. Well, I think. Look, sorry, go I, finish off, Chris. I think we're going to have to move on, are we? Yes, we are, because we're obviously uh, strapped for time. We'll move on to number nine, and this one, Caruso. I'm going to take. Uh, you're going to leave your lead on this one. It's the fall of Ricky Nixon. 
in the oh, AFL. Oh, boy. In this day and age, there is much said about the inherent strength of player managers within the world of sports, the ability to make or bake the career of their clients. But they've always managed to do so behind closed doors, and the breaking careers often ends up being the players themselves for their poor behaviours. This is one incident where the player manager is the subject of the fall. Um, something would have, I think, Dom fit in very perfectly with a modern soap opera. Could have been in Days of Our Lives, for all <laughs> we know. So, um, and we're talking about Ricky Nixon. Uh, he, in his day, a highly talented flanker, originally from Carlton. He made his name at St Kilda. Um, over five, over five years, scored a very impressive thirty-two goals from fifty-one matches, so scoring more than more than one every other game. Um, he then started very early on his own sports management company calling Flying Start. Um, and he ended up picking up some very good portfolio clients, including some names that even people like you and I who don't follow AFL that much would know. Gary Ablett Sr., Wayne Carey, Tony Locker, Gary Lyon, Ben Cousins, and Nick Rewalt. Uh, and, in fact, he was influential in bringing Ty Keneally from Gaelic football to the Sydney Swans. But it all came crashing down in 2011 after news agencies broke the story of an inappropriate affair that Nicky, Ricky Nixon had been having with a 17-year-old girl. While not illegal, it came as Ricky was married at the time and the girl had been known um, to the St Kilda Club, including specific events involving one Nick Rewalt. All legal, again, I should stress, but highly inappropriate. But... It was the news that the girl had actually shared nude photos of herself to Ricky Nixon and Nixon would pay her in alcohol that the police then acted. What's worse, one of the dalliances arranged during Nixon and the girl occurred while the pair were under investigation with the police and Ricky Nixon was actually on bail at the time. Ugh. I mean, it's it, it's funny, isn't it, the, the, these stories? I mean, it, it, it is a scandal and it, it, I mean, we've we had one recently, I suppose, uh, to an extent with the uh, the recent uh, Bulldogs uh, uh, controversy with yeah. uh, with Jada Nockenbor and Corey Hamari and Naira, who were were leching onto some high school girls um, when they were on a preseason uh, country trip. Um, of course, all legal, but I suppose that that you know at least those two guys are only you know. Released in their early twenties, but Nixon, not uh, not it wasn't as uh, as young as those guys were at the time. Happily married and and quite a big name within the within the within the sport itself. So, I mean, it comes down to that that sort of uh, you know, it, uh, how do you you know PC kind of thing? You know how 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 PC are, uh, are people willing to you know? How much PC are people willing to let go or let pass before someone steps in and says something? It well, is very awkward. To yeah, say absolutely. So Ricky Nixon was, of course, suspended by the Players Association in 2011, charged with providing alcohol to a minor before going on a bend, on going bender after bender. Uh, he received further charges of drink driving and common assault. He only got, mind you, he only got community service and a good behaviour bond. How he got that, I'll never know. Um, but he went into full uh, a full spiral. Arrested and fined for indecent exposure, domestic violence, public drunkenness, just just go you go on. Um, he has recently been in the news as well, following the tell-all from one Ben Cousins, one-time manager of a former medalist within AFL, and they're now at each other's throats. What can you say? 
Not much more, really. That's, I think uh, natural selection will eventually take its course. Moving on to number eight, and it's one that uh, is in the uh, – more again, once in uh, Anthony Caruso's and the, the Matt Mears and the Shane Evans and the Jacob Aquilina. It's pretty much everyone's territory but mine. Um, but it is uh, – we are referring to cricket, and we are referring to a very special time in Shane Warne's career. Now, everyone knows that this man had a, a few blunders uh, during his uh, playing days, despite the fact that he was obviously – one of the greatest um, bowlers, but def- and definitely the best leg spin bowler of uh, of all time, I think at the moment. And it was, of, I am though, of course, referring to one particular moment where Shane Warne blamed his mum for the use of a diuretic. Oh, isn't this amazing? This is this is quite simply laughable. This it's, ho- have it's a whole so thing good, planned it's so out. Good. Um, this is so bad. You know, there's, there's, you know, we could have picked on a couple of other things for Shane Warne. You're talking about one of his Shane Warne's more interesting moments. Of course, we're not talking about his relationship with Liz Hurley, where all of a sudden he made leg spinning cool again somehow. Um, we're t- we could have talked about his very public spat with, with his former captain, Stephen Moore. We could have spoken about the the time that he provided a random bookmaker with information about the playing conditions leading up to the match. He did this alongside Mark Wall. It should be stated, though, to his credit, that he did report Salam Malik, uh, who tried to engage himself, Mark Wall and Tim May, in some match fixing. There was also the very public scrutiny following the breakup with his ex-wife, Simone, following numerous affairs, especially while I was in England. Nothing could prepare us for this. He struggled with injury back in 2001, finger injuries, shoulder injuries. He lost his test spot to Stuart McGill and Colin Miller. He was back. Um, He had to drop out then again during injury. The race was on for Shane Warne to see if he was going to be fit for the 2003 World Cup which was going to be his last major tournament at the time. A week into camp, Warren was sent home after a drug test done during the previous year's VB series, tested positive for a diuretic. Now, people are probably wondering, what is a diuretic? A diuretic um, is a tablet that's often taken um, to control the the holding of fluid certainly used quite a bit within weight loss certainly not a performance enhancing drug that as one would as you would suggest as one would suggest on but it's its ability is to be able to hide the use of performance enhancing drugs (laughs) hence why it's actually banned the acb found warned guilty of breaching his drug policy and banned it for one year but that's not all he picked up a one-year contract commentating with Channel 9 was allowed to compete in charity matches and Victoria Premier Cricket matches for St Kilda, which then had WADA knocking on the door as well. How – he blamed his mum for uh, this. I mean, it's not a bad excuse, is it, really? I mean, how many times have you used a family member to get yourself out of trouble? I mean – with someone else because you know for a fact that this per- said person is never going to follow it up with that person you know the amount of times that i've i've done it or i've known friends that have done it they go oh, i can't come this weekend because i've got my grandmother's birthday i ain't gonna call up his grandmother and find out if it's her birthday i think it's a great excuse all for it in my opinion <laughs> absolutely um now I think the worst thing was is that the alarm bells first started ringing when he was appearing on Inside Cricket on Fox Sports. Um, 
flogging off his latest collection of wine. And the first thing you notice is how much weight he'd actually lost. <laughs> it was like, it's like that moment from the 1994 FIFA World Cup when Diego Maradona scored the goal and he yes. goes off celebrating like a lunatic and all of a sudden Wada come knocking on the door at the end of the game going, you drug test now. Yep, I know. It was quite funny as well because, like, you know, obviously in Maradona's case, it was you was obviously taking um, cocaine, but obviously you would argue that uh, that isn't what well, it shouldn't really be a uh, a performance enhancing um, method that most professional athletes would turn to these days. But with, with Shane's, it was an interesting one, wasn't it? Because it's yeah, obviously there was definitely suspicion around whether or not the diuretic was used to cover up something else he might be taking. But he was. It, it, it all leads to the fact that he was clearly suffering from injury, weight gain. He was struggling to lose weight. Um, I mean, I think even remotely at the time, but he started doing like one of those kind of like s- small meal adverts for a very long time, wasn't he? Oh, like light and yeah. easy. Yeah. Yeah, he was doing light and easy yeah. for a while. So it all kind of it all kind of points towards something a little bit more sinister on his front. But, I mean, he got away with it, came back, had a monster, I think it was 2005 and 2006 Ashes series, um, and yeah, cemented sh- his place in history, really, didn't he? Shared the player of the series award with um, Andrew Flintoff after taking 40 wickets and scoring 249 runs, which was actually the most amount of runs he'd ever scored in a test series. So... Um, so yeah, absolutely brilliant. I think we move on to number seven. Let's move on to number seven because time is flying, and I'm going to say it straight off the gun because this uh, fine cotton ain't so fine. Oh, the sport of kings has been known to attract very colourful personalities. Some have added positively. You know, we talk the we talk very glowingly of the people like Bart Cummings and Gay Waterhouse. Others left. Others have left a lasting mark on the industry, and not for the right kind. Our entry from horse racing isn't the death of Farlap, rumored to have been murdered by American gangsters, worried that Farlap would actually destroy them, or Melbourne Cup favourite Big Falou being scratched 39 minutes before the Melbourne Cup after it had been found that Dantheron had been administered. No, we're off to Queensland and the operation around Eagle Farm for what became known as the Fine Cotton Affair. Cheating. At, on an outright basis, it was stupid, brazen, borderlining on comical. Now, for those of you who don't know, because this is, we're going back to the 70s, fine cotton was uh, 70s and 80s. Fine cotton was a Queensland-based thoroughbred, a brown gelding, white markings, and high legs. That is important in a very in a very moment. He was a bad horse race, uh, racing horse. His last start in the lead-up to a, a race was an intermediate handicap in Dubin with a second-lowest weight put on him at 53.5 kilos. He ran 10th in that. Now, the owners teamed up with a former bloodstock agent in the name of John Gillespie, uh, who managed to buy a horse by the name of Dashing Solitaire, who looked exactly the same as Fine Cotton. But guess what? Dashing Solitaire, boat attendant. Uh, couldn't run, forcing the syndicate to find another horse in place of fine cotton. So they were doing what's known as what is um, more comically known as a switch. <laughs> so they are going to run another horse and claim that that is this actual horse. They picked up a horse named Bold Personality, but there was a problem. Bold Personality looked nothing like fine cotton. 
Fine Cotton, as I said, was a brown gildy. Bold personality was a bay gildy, more red body, almost black mane, uh, and no white marks. So guess what they did? They added clariol hair colour colouring to bold personality, forgot to use the peroxide to whiten the legs, um, so they replaced it with white paint. The best <laughs> part – go on. I mean, it just has – it just reminds me of that scene from uh, Meet the Parents where he yeah. finds the wrong cat and he spray paints the tail. <laughs> yeah. What's better, during the middle of the race, it, the the rumours that the ring-in had spread as far as Sydney with betting plungers driving the odds on fine cotton from 33 to 1 to 7 to 2 favourite. If it had come off, the conspirators would have netted $1.5 million. But here we go. In the middle of the race, the paint ran. Oops. So <laughs> stewards have gotten wise. Uh, they approached Hayden Haitana, uh, who committed what we can only affectionately call a Harold Holt. <laughs> Bold personality, a.k.a. Fine Cotton, was disqualified. A full-blown investigation was launched. Five people were banned for life. John Gillespie, the original ring, ringleader, served in jail. Hayden Haitana, whom they managed to finally track down, no, he didn't drown in the ocean, um, got jail time. Robert North, Tommaso De, De Luzio, and John Dixon, all syndicate members of this horse, were all banned for life. There were two more bans, 14 years and six, two more served 14 years and six months jail, and the two most famous people implicated in this were the bookies involved, Bill and Robbie Waterhouse, the uh, husband of Gay Waterhouse. Ah, uh, yes. And they wonder why Tom Waterhouse betting didn't take off. <laughs> you, have to, you have to remember, Gay Waterhouse is the daughter of legendary horse trainer TJ Smith. Of course, the TJ Smith stakes named after him. Um, so Gay was banned from getting her training license because of Robbie. Well, that's what happens when you date a man who runs bookies. Yeah. He ain't exactly always going to be too trustworthy. Now, speaking of doing a Harold Holt, we're going to move into our final uh, selection before we go to the break. Uh, and as I said, speaking of uh, Harold Holtz, let's talk about Australia, coming in at number six, Australia's deadliest ocean race. This is, this is a sad, sad one, an indictment on everyone who was involved in administrating the competition at this time. The Sydney to Hobart, of course, one of the most hotly contested open water races in the world. Um, battle the super maxis for line honours all the way down to the handicap. You and I, Dom, we're not that much of yachting people. We love watching it, especially on Boxing Day, because it's fascinating to watch them trying to bustle their way out of Sydney Harbour and make the race down to Constitution Dock in Hobart. Um, but nothing could prepare them for what happened in 1998. On the day, conditions couldn't be more ideal. It was a southern current, a solid northeasterly breeze meant that after the jostling to get around South Head, the yachts would be sprinting down the new New South Wales south coast. In fact, within 18 hours, most of the maxis had managed to reach um, managed to reach Bass Strait. But there was an unseasonal cold front from the Antarctic Ocean moving its way up north resulting in snow in the Victorian Alps, but a massive storm off the ocean. Um, but it, the conduct of the Bureau of Meteorology and the organising committee of from the Cruising Yacht Club um, were ill-prepared 
they failed to and um, to let any of the crews know of this impending storm coming through. In fact, they the conduct was such that they were seen more as observers rather than managers. Um, the conditions turned for the worst was nothing short of incredible. We're talking a category form storm just off the New South Wales south coast approaching Bass Strait. You don't hear about this. This is normally a tropical storm. Wind speeds up to 65 knots and gusts as high as 80 knots. Five boats sank, seven entries abandoned, 55 ships had to be saved. The, the Royal Australian Navy had to be deployed to achieve this. Unfortunately, the incident also resulted in the death of six sailors, three souls lost from the boat, the Winston Churchill, two from the business post Nyad, and one from the sword of Orion. The race director, Phil Thompson, was forced to resign following his performance with managing the 1998 edition, with the coroner noting Mr Thompson's inability to appreciate the problems when they arose and his inability to appreciate them at the time of giving his evidence causes me concern that he may not be he may not appreciate such problems as they arrive in the future. The organising committee, the Bureau of Meteorology, have obviously stepped up their, uh, their game to ensure this never happens again. But yeah. why did it have to wait until an event like this for them to spring into action? I'm not too sure. I think it's one of those things. It goes back to the old kind of – I think nowadays, obviously, things like – as soon as it's uh, someone's picked up on a radar that there's going to be a, a slight gust that the, the the race won't go ahead. But back then still in, in 1998, the dangers of, of, of the event, probably still not quite as, um, let's say, appreciated – than they are now, obviously, it costs that bit of water, which is which is very treacherous. Why did it have to happen? Look, it, it didn't have to happen, did it? But it did. I think uh, the thrill, the the excitement has clearly on this day gotten in the way of 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 rational thought, and it's and it's and it cost the lives of of ten of ten people. You know, yeah. it's. It was a tragic day in Australian sporting history and one that uh, we obviously still mourn to this day. So, ladies and gents, on that note, that's the first half of Splinters Done and Dusted of the top 10 Australian sporting scandals uh, with myself, Don Rizzuto, and Anthony the Ball Caruso. When we come back, we will have the top five. Stay tuned right here. Welcome back. To Splinters Top 10 Australian Sporting Scandals with me, Dom Rosetto, and Anthony the Ball Caruso. You've just heard our first five come off the bat. Let's just repeat that in order for you in case you missed the first half. Coming in at number 10, we had the sacking of former Matildas coach Alan Stadich. Uh, number nine, we had the fall of Ricky Nixon and his time uh, on and off the field, on and off the field in the AFL. Coming in at number eight, Shane Warne blamed his mum for the use of a diuretic. In at seven, we had the farce of fine cotton and the switcheroo in one of Australia's more funny horse racing blunders. And in at number six, we just spoke at the bottom of that, uh, top of that first half of the show, the tragic loss of sailors during Australia's deadliest ocean race, the Sydney to Hobart, when decisions were made poorly which resulted in the lives of um of competitors when they strayed in waters that were too strong caruso not a bad five to start with but we've got another five to come oh boy do we have another five to come well, let's kick cr- it off 
we've arguably one that could have been at number one. Uh, it, it was uh, one of the, as some would call it, the dankest of times in rugby league. And we're not talking about that. Yeah, that's dank, like new, new slang that it's dank. We're talking, we're using this as like a dark version of this word. <laughs> well, of course, because because remember the uh, the presentation by Kate Lundy and Jason Clare when they came out and announced that we were about to go through the darkest period of Australian sporting history and it turned into an absolute farce. But there was one person off the field and one person on who really got claimed. It seemed an unusual due. It seems an unusual due of sporting clubs to be embroiled within a sporting scandal being two suburban clubs in two different cities playing two different codes. That's exactly what we've got here because we are talking about a scandal that gripped both the Essendon Bombers and the Cronulla Sutherland Sharks. From 2011 to 2013, both clubs were under investigation for the use of illegal substances by ASADA in, a, in partnership with the Australian Crime and Investigations Commission. The connection between the two was a sports doctor named, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Stephen Dank. He had been a revolutionary sports scientist, especially with his use of altitude training and GPS tracking um, in training and game time. One, he actually revolutionised Dom, as you might be aware, with the Manly Ringer Seagulls under Des Hasler. That is true. Surprised that they didn't get caught up in this myself. Indeed. In 2013, <laughs> in 2013, this is incredible. In 2013, Essendon referred themselves to Asada over irregularities over practices from Stephen Dank. This is after former players Kyle Reimers uh, claimed that players were required to sign waivers before being injected with supplements, a claim disputed by Mark McVeigh. Now, Essendon let Dank go before Asada began their investigations following comments that Dank had made to a Fairfax journalist. Now, we, we acknowledge that sports stars will take supplements from time to time. Most of them are actually legal. You know, we're talking iron supplements, magnesium supplements, stuff to, you know, ensure that the body continues to function without too many issues. Now, the in- investigation started with findings of Dank supplying peptides, particularly temporan to his players. Now, People don't know, for those who don't know, Tempora is a highly controversial supplement with variations that are currently considered legal by WADA and others considered illegal with mind performance enhancing abilities and major impacts to, once again, mask other drugs. The diuretics, I think, is a, uh, is actually a variation of this. What's more, the drugs have also been found to be used at the Cronulla Sutherland Sharks during the period of Shane Flanagan's first tenure as head coach. In a world where Australia seems to have majorly pride themselves of being one of the cleanest countries in the world in terms of their objection to the use of performance-enhancing drugs, this was a smack in the face to two of the most popular sports codes in Australia. What dragged the scandal down um, the list is that both clubs at the time didn't actually win anything. So Essendon and Cronulla <laughs> yes. didn't actually win their respective competitions. Oh, no, they not win. They were terrible. Yeah. They sucked, both of those teams. Nevertheless, the judgments resulted in huge ramifications. Essendon, we all remember this, James Hurd was sacked from his position while the players, initially found not guilty, were eventually punished on appeal and banned by the AFL for six months. Essendon had to play the entire 2014 season with what was effectively their VFL team. Dom Cronulla. Well, let's not get started with them. Oh... Two-thirds of the Shark squad received two-year bans, but the bans were backdated to result in no suspension in the end after players signed confessionals to the event. Flanagan thrown under the bus. He was banned from coaching for a year. 
He returned. Cronulla ended up going on to win the premiership on his return, and I should stress clean. But then he was soon to lose his job and deregistered after he was found to have colluded with players during his time banned from the game. Now, Kate Lundy called the day called this day, along with Jason Clare, the darkest day in Australian sporting history. It was a bad day. It wasn't a black day because we need to stress the only person, the only other person that actually got caught and tested positive to actually tested positive to these drugs. Dom, would you like to know who, or do you actually know? I'll let you tell the audience. Caruso. Ladies and gentlemen, it is former rugby league player turned underwear model, that shining light of rugby league success. Sandor Earl. <laughs> I still remember very vividly, vividly him scoring a great try back in 2011 for the Penrith Panthers. So um, maybe that was a maybe he did have some sort of help. Yeah, look, I think the sh- I mean the the debate whether they the 2016 premiership was clean or not will probably rage on for some time uh, after that. Um, who knows what effects that the players would have been feeling following on from some of the. Uh, Supplements they were taking in the in the build up to the 2011 and 2013 seasons respectively. Let's move on, but of course that is now sort of wrapped. We thought was wrapped up, but obviously Cronulla, as you may have known, ladies and gentlemen, are still in the thick of things with Bronson Cherry now. However, we must move on to number four, and we're going to get into some Olympic sports. It is the controversy, which was the Still Knock Six. There are certain roles in teams where there is developed, for better or worse, an expectation of culture and best practice. Um, you and I talk about it all the time. Good culture can often define a team and lead them on to greatness, correct? Correct. Yeah. One of the organisations that prides itself on a culture within is the Australian cricket team. The other is the Australian Olympic team, commonly known as the Dolphins. Now, for a number of years, they had success and a great team culture, led by the likes of Kieran Perkins, Hayley Lewis, Daniel Kowalski, Michael Klim, Ian Thorpe, Jeff Hugel, Grant Hackett, Libby Trickett, Susie Neal, Samantha Riley, Gian Rooney, Liesl Jones, and Emily Seabong. The rivalry that developed between Australia and the US will reach fever pitch. Now, we know how much we love to beat the Americans in swimming. But it came to a head at the London Olympics, an Olympics that Australia felt they were going to do well as it would be treated as a home away from home. They were hoping to repeat their success from the 2000 Olympic Games, and they had a squad to do it as well, Don. We remember some of these names. The Missile, James Magnuson, Eamon Sullivan, Mitch Larkin, the Campbell sisters, that's Kate and Bronte, Cameron McEnvoy, Stephanie Rice, and Jess Shipper. Most of the females competed more than admirably, picking up several medals. The same couldn't be said for the men. They had a target, 12 Olympic goals, and they failed spectacularly. The reason for the failure soon came out. The culture within the swim team had become highly toxic with accusations of late night, and I put it in inverted commas, extracurricular activities. Now, with with them being out and doing whatever they were doing, they attempted to try and help themselves get to sleep after getting on a massive, I would say, emotional high. Let's put it that way. Um, And they tried to counteract it by using Stillnox, which is a sleeping tablet. Now, unfortunately, this led to the players being overtired and underprepared. Um, the, the massive, massive criticism for this on the shoulders of Magnuson, McAvoy, Sullivan and Rice. 
Um, and the veterans in the team, Liesl Jones and Libby Trickett, both came out in the media and blasted the meet, the the squad, especially the support squad, who set unrealistic targets and the male swimmers for the behaviour that they were engaging in. It resulted in the Bluestone report, which blasted the culture of the Dolphin squad as one of selfish, self-centred individuals with a win-at-all-cost attitude and general behaviour of nuisance. Yes, I'm quoting here, ladies and gentlemen. The criticism of besetting the poor culture was levelled on the coaching staff headed by Ted Nugent and reported a lack of focus and support unless you were a keen metal target, a lack of mental health support and no accountability of the way the taxpayers' money was being spent. Now called the Lonely Games, the London Olympics has now been used as a blueprint of what not to do, but given what has happened with the team over the years since then, it remains to be seen if they'll ever recover again. I don't think so. And I think even on the women's side, they had a big falling out too, didn't they? I remember there were big stories about how toxic it was between the likes of Stephanie Rice and Liesl Jones not getting on at all well and, and them spiting each other and saying things behind their back and then reporting it back to Ted Nugent, trying to, you know, trying to one-up each other, trying to become the favourite child. I think it goes back to that old saying that it's just in team sport, sorry, in solo sports, attitudes will always be a problem. And in 2012, they just had far too many stars in one team. And then, to be fairly honest, yeah, okay, they were good. But they weren't nearly as good as the swimmers that came before them. And the attitude behind them and the arrogance was just painful. And their performance, because of it, was pitiful. So I, for one, say what goes around comes around. And you know what? It ain't coming around for a lot of those guys again when it comes to competing at Olympic Games. Well, most of them have retired now, so yeah, we're never going to see them again unless they go into some sort of TV um, TV show, which, you know, well, at least for once. Unfortunately, some of them do. Yeah. <laughs> <Stephanie> <laughs> of, uh, well, yeah, well, it's speaking of uh, unfortunate, uh, let's say, uh, media appearances, number three, arguably, for in my mind, I have to say, was my was close to my number one when it came to uh, agreeing upon ourselves where we would slot these in terms of its order. And it is the big boxing match. It's true. It is the big boxing match or or fistfight or slap-a-thon contest. It was Israel Folau versus Rugby Australia in the social media post-war that essentially rocked an entire sport. It has been a dark period for Rugby Australia. The golden period of the late 90s and 2000, the mini revivals following the stunning performance of those mighty New South Wales Waratahs in the 2010s. But since then, it has been really one PR disaster after another. It it has to be said, not all of it was the fault of Rugby Australia. Of course, there was one moment, which was when uh, former CEO Bill Pulver's daughter, I think you might remember, had a fake bomb brace attached to her neck. Yes. Uh, Remember that. I I felt sorry for them from that. Um, The recent run has been simply diabolical and 100% self-inflicted. Players opting for the big money in Europe or Japan and foregoing their right to represent Australia. Part of this has been caused by poor attempts from Rugby Australia to market the game. Their focus has been on money spinners and turning Rugby 7s into a cash cow at the detriment of grassroots 15s rugby. 
Rugby Australia had also been through its fair share of player controversy, although not nearly to the same realm as other sports. We've seen the questionable behaviours of the likes of Kirby Beale, Matt Gitto, James O'Connor, Quay Cooper, uh, although most of his was actually caused by, oh, look who's popped up against Stephanie Rice. <laughs> we Jeez. don't have a vendetta against Stephanie Rice, but let's just say, ladies we clearly and gentlemen, she, don't. Ain't, oh, no. she ain't a favourite of ours. No, absolutely. This paled in significance about what to, was to come with the biggest star of the time is Raphael. Falau's career has never been far for controversy. Of course, we remember he was a proud Queenslander despite being born and raised in Minto. <laughs> Played for the camera. I mean, get in, get in line. Get in line. He was a junior from the Cabramatta to Blues. And he qualified because he played for Marsden State High School and got for one year and got signed by the North Devils at the age of 16. Are you kidding me? Now, obviously, this drew major attention about whether players, whether he should have played for New South Wales or Queensland. And, of course, he was part of the Melbourne Storm team that lost to Manly in 2008 to NRL Premiership for New York. Um, now, although he was at the club at the time, he was not implicated with anything to do with the salary cap cheating that was going on. And we may just talk about some of that a little bit later on. But he then went for the big money. First off, with the great, great Western Sydney Giants in AFL and then the Waratahs. Now... A lot of people know it's very well-known fact that Falau is deeply religious. He grew up as a Mormon. He played a key role in the Mormon breakaway called the Assemblies of God, and he bankrolls this entire congregation. But it took a step further for the worse over the last couple of years. Rugby Australia came out and voiced their support of same-sex marriage. Israel Falau stepped out and said no and called um, – gay marriage a sin. His last protection was removed in 2018 when Paul was replaced as CEO by Raylene Castle, who immediately went to war with Falau. Um, and in around postings he did on Instagram that quoted a Bible phrase interpreting it as being homophobic. And then came in 2019 with his infamous post directly quoting from the book of Corinthians. Following pressure from major sponsors, and I can't believe this happened, Pressure from sponsors Qantas, from major sponsor Qantas, of course, CEO Alan Joyce is openly gay. Rugby Australia tore up Flower's contract. Flower and sued Rugby Australia, and it was eventually settled out of court. But the amount Dom was ridiculous. It was, it was too much. Then it, it and it crippled, it crippled Rugby Australia. It it showed that. There's still too much power on the individual and not the organisation. Um, it showed once again that the, there is, the player is bigger than the sport. He's gone over to France to play rugby league now, had a fat payday, probably never have to work a day in his life again. And now Rugby Australia, off the back of having suffering from this major fallout where the player who simply just couldn't, keep his mouth shut, is now really struggling because they don't even have sport on the park to keep it afloat. But we thought that was bad. Let's go to number two, shall we? We did think that was bad. And this one I think we all know to be very, very famous. It's involving rugby league once again, ladies and gentlemen. We're trying not to keep it too much involved with them, but remember the rules are two, and this is the the second one technically uh, involving the sport. And I am, of course, talking about 
the Melbourne Storm salary cap breach between the years 2007 and 2009? There have been salary cap. Let's let's be let's call spades. Spade. There have been salary cap breaches throughout the history of rugby league. Some of them have been relatively minor, and those minor ones involve the New Zealand Warriors, and recently the Cronulla Sutherland Sharks, and then Manly. Uh, although the Manly ones, even there, were. Uh, traced back to miscalculations, so were Cronulla and so were the New Zealand Warriors. There were two major salary cap breaches. One of them, uh, two other major salary cap breaches, one of them quite possibly the stupidest, as you remember, Don, which was Parramatta, uh, miscalculating by an average of $1 million a year over five years, resulting in them having their Auckland Nines premiership stripped. Dead set, it was worse maths going on there than Penny Wong. And the Canterbury-based sound Bulldogs, of course, we know this one was fairly blatant. 2002 um, cheated the salary cap to the tune of $2.13 million. They were deducted all 37 points at the time, and they would have finished in the top four that year. But it pales in significance compared when compared to the biggest cheating of the salary cap in Australian sporting history. Following an anonymous whistleblower, who gave information straight to the NRL Integrity Commission of a second set of books being used at the Melbourne Storm. They had cheated from 2006 to 2010 to the tune of $3.78 million, including, and I kid you not, $3 million a year from two, uh, sorry, $3 million from 2008 to 2010. That's a million dollars a year. The extent of cheating was such that Green English, Billy Slater and Cameron Smith and one other unnamed player received illegal payments in the form of goods from third parties, $20,000 gift vouchers, a boat and cars for partners. It was never proved as to whether the players realised it, but, geez, you know, to this extent, surely the ATO would have been interested in having a look at this. Yeah, you would have thought so, wouldn't you? I mean, there was clearly something fishy going on here from the get-go when it came to uh, the stuff they were getting up to at the Melbourne Storm. They were far too good for for so long. Um, with the quality of play, you got to remember that team was just very, very good and had stars right across the park. And they effectively got done. And and, and I think a lot of people weren't too... Uh, not really uh, too upset about it either. Absolutely. And the punishments, though, were amazing. The previous CEO, Brian Waldron, who then headed up the Melbourne Rebels, then CEO Matt Hansen, then CFO Paul Gregory, found to be the masterminds. Matt Hansen and Paul Gregory were sacked from the storm, deregistered from the NRL. Brian Waldron was forced to resign from the Rebels. Uh, they have all been deregistered, not only from the NRL, but also um, – also the um, uh, the ARU at the time, and banned for life. The club was fined $1.689 million, uh, including the fines and the return of prize money totaling $1.1 million. They were stripped of their 07 and 09 premierships, stripped of their minor premierships from 06 to 08, stripped of their 08 World Club Challenge victory, deducted of all eight points in 2000, uh, I think it was 2010, and told they would play for no points for the rest of the season. And they were forced to cut their payroll by $1 million to meet the 2011 salary cap or risk outright suspension. Um, And not only that, not only that, they then appealed, dropped (laughs) the case and were forced to pay the NRL's legal fees. I mean, I don't know what they were appealing. I mean, they, I mean, arguably they should have been, they should have handed the premierships to both the Sea Eagles and the Parramatta Eels during that time as well, but they didn't. Um, and they were got done. So, look, 
Melbourne Storm, we always knew that they were they're dodgy and they got done for being dodgy. Um, however, they did come back and prove to be still one of the best teams in the competition despite that. Let's move on to our number one. We will have a little bit of a drum roll for it before um, we announce it. But we are going to go through some honourable mentions quickly. Um, I'm just going to run them up the top. You've got to think the ones that just didn't quite make the list. We've got Alex Wright uh, was a drug cheat, but then wasn't. Uh, one that wasn't really uh, any kind of cheating, or but it was very scandalous. The underarm ball. Everyone remembers the uh, was it Tre- Trevor Chapel who threw yep. the underarm ball during uh, the Australian New Zealand One Day series back in. I'm not going to be able to remember the date for you exactly. 1981. 1981. The collapse of rugby New South Wales in the early 90s and Throwdown Sally. All very scandalous and controversial, but. Not quite making our 10 tonight. I'm sure that we could maybe even do a part two if this podcast does take off and has a few fans uh, suggesting some other moments within Australian sport that we missed. But uh, back to our drum roll. Number one on the Linters list is Sandpaper Gate. How could we not include it and how could it not be number one? We often pride ourselves on being able to play sports in a hard but fair attitude, and this is usually the spirit in which one of our national sports, cricket, is played in. There have been moments where that line has been walked on but never crossed. The, of course, the aforementioned underarm delivery, the end of World Series cricket in 81, the strategy of mental disintegration deployed by Stephen War at the turn of the millennium. Australia also on the receiving end of similar behaviour, ranging from the Bodyline series to Monkey Gate in 2009. Of course, the accusations launched on Harbhajan Singh of calling uh, Andrew Simons a monkey during a game. But nothing could prepare Australia for what was in store for the so-called tour from hell when they went to South Africa in 2017. It all started off with the taunting of David Warner by the South African fans, especially with the story about his wife, Candace Warner, formerly Candace Falzone. And this was driven by the vice-captain at the time, Faf Duplassie, um, wearing, and a few of fans, wearing masks of one Sonny Bill Williams. I mean, that's enough to really tick David Warner off at the best of times. But then the tour blew wide open when Cameron Bancroft was caught using sandpaper on the match ball to influence the swing effect on the ball. Illegal under the laws of the game, the states that no artificial treatment of the ball can be allowed. What came after would blow the Australian team apart, a situation they would not recover from until the 2019 Cricket World Cup and the 2019 Ashes. Cameron Bancroft came out and stated he was placed under duress for his test position from David Warner, who in turn tried to blame Captain Stephen Smith. The ICC threatened the trio with suspensions, although these were in line with other suspensions handed out. We're talking a couple of test matches and forfeiting match fees. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull intervened. They called Cricket Australia and demanded harsh penalties on the trio in the wake of the public outcry over the incident and threatened to pull government support of cricket if this was not done. Under public and government pressure, Cricket Australia handed out one-year bans to David Warner and Stephen Smith, nine-month ban to Cameron Bancroft. With all three players gone, Australia's top order was in disarray and the team went through a panic leadership transition, settling on Tim Payne as the new captain. The bloodletting didn't stop either. James Sutherland and two-thirds of the CA board resigned or decided not to renew their terms so as to bring new blood onto the board. Now, the dust has well and truly settled over this period. Steve Smith and David Warner are back in the Australian team performing at new heights. Tim Payne has widely been commended for his captaincy of the team during a difficult period. But the same cannot be said for Cameron Bancroft, who is facing the real prospect of losing his spot with the Australian Western Australian lineup due to faltering form. 
the person effectively left out to dry by Cricket Australia. I mean, it was a very interesting time, wasn't it, for Australian sport? Um, especially Australian cricket team. We go back to that, you know, having good culture um, within the swimming team and within the cricket team. And clearly, that culture was not what it was ex- was expected in that in that Test series. Um, the the public outcry, whether you agreed the punishment was fair or not. And that they sh- they shouldn't re- received it, and that you know that players did pick at the ball all the time and and cheat on the field, and it's only a crime if you get caught. It's not about what they did; it's about how the image of Australian sport was tarnished because of their actions. They were caught cheating. Australia yeah. is known for well, we like to to think that we're known for not cheating. Um, and this essentially did not just da- but not just damage the the sport and the and the nation's um, respective athletes um, within Australia, but globally, globally it, the relate the reputation is was tarnished because of these actions, and Absolutely. all because you know one or two players got a little upset and were the jibe, you know couldn't handle the jibes. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go through those one more, that number 10 one more time before we wrap up, shall we? Yes, Crusoe, take us away. Number 10, Alan Staggart sacked for what exactly? At number 9, the fall of Ricky Nixon. Number 8, Shane Warne blames his mum for the use of a diuretic. Number 7, fine cotton ain't so fine. Number 6, Australia's deadliest ocean race. Number 5, the dankest of times. Number 4, the still knock 6. Number 3, Israel Folau versus Rugby Australia. Number 2, Melbourne Storm salary cap breach. And number 1, Sandpaper Gates. There you go, listeners. Tonight you have heard Splinter's top 10 Aussie sporting scandals here on Triple H 100.1 FM. Again, you can catch this uh, anytime you like on any podcast forum um, that you happen to get your material off. And, of course, we do this all for Magpies Y Tara, the action attraction of the North Shore. Caruso, my thanks to you uh, putting this together, a, a fabulous idea. Uh, it's good to have the old firm back. I'm sure that uh, with the return of certain sports happening uh, around the corner, you and I will be ready to firm up once again. Can't wait. Absolutely cannot wait. Until next time, guys, this has been Splinters on Triple H 100.1 FM. My name's Dom. Stay sharp and play pretty. Good night. 